the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tobacco Master Pain. The following program is sponsored by Reaching Hearts Ministries. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentango is up to part number 21 of the Genesis series entitled The Stranger. We'll have that broadcast for you today and on Monday. We hope that you enjoy it. If you have questions about it, you can call this telephone number 877-788-5371. That's 877-788-5371. I'll have some more details at the close of our message today, so stay with us for a few seconds afterwards. Here is Pastor Michael Oxentenko with The Stranger. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that into the dark night of our struggle for faith came Jesus Christ. I want to thank you, Father, before there really was a legitimate struggle, he fought with you in grace and mercy and found an opening in the divine plan that you had placed at the foundation of the world to lead us to the rock of the universe, the primordial principle, the living well, the center of your reality. And at the cross we come to that, Father. And sometimes in our lives... We have to come to the desert twice, first to hear, then to see. I pray, O Father, for the soul that has come the first time and has not seen you. May they go back and find you the second time with sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Into the dark night of another woman's failure to deliver her husband's dreams, she took her midnight stand as the other woman in his love life. Her mistress was old, she was young. Her mistress was named Sarai, which means princess with a masculine edge to it in Hebrew. Her name was Hagar, which means stranger or foreigner. She was a piece of property tossed about from a cruel king to a backsliding businessman, and no one thought anything of it except her. She was the simple solution for her mistress's inability to have children. She was a commodity to be exploited in a day of slavery. She was chosen to be a surrogate mother in a relationship she never asked for. Her mistress was married to the father of her child, and every day her mistress reminded her that she was a stranger in another woman's home. Every day her mistress reminded her that she was property and not a person. Her mistress reminded her that her son belonged to her, and her husband's was not for her to enjoy. Hands off, honey. She was an unwelcome guest in a home that had never been divided before she entered it. She divided it. Yes, she divided it. She was the gift of Pharaoh, the thorn in Abram's side. She was the stranger. As the other woman in her mistress's life, her life of service became an existence of pure bitterness. She was an unwelcome guest waiting for the right night, yes, the right night to steal her master's love and take her mistress's place as her husband's queen. In the life of Abram, she was the stranger. The context for the stranger's tale of tears begins in Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Now Hagar in the Hebrew means stranger or foreigner. Verse 2, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. 
go into my maid, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now just a few verses before, God had promised that Abram would have a son in his old age. In fact, he found it so hard to believe, how can this be? And God took him outside and showed him the stars of heaven. And he said, Abram, I will give you children and you will not be able to number them like the stars of the sky. Now it's interesting, when he did that in Genesis chapter 15, he did not directly mention the name of Sarah. The promise was made to Abram. And it's interesting in the context, it seems that somehow Sarai took that to heart and thought that the promise was not for her, just for him. And being a good wife who loved her husband, being a good wife who wanted her husband's dreams to come true, feeling that somehow God had shut her out, he wanted the promise to be true for Abram through someone else. Now there was a legal provision in the land of Babylon for a barren woman to have a child. The law provided a way for a son to continue the family name born to a slave. The law also provided a protection for the wife and her standing in the house. In the Code of Hammurabi, in fact, when Bible scholars read the story of Sarai, Abram, and Hagar, they are certain that Abram and Sarai have within this storyline the Code of Hammurabi, commandment number 145 in mind. And it reads like this, If a man takes a priestess, and she does not present him with children, that man may take a concubine and bring her into his house. That concubine shall not rank with his wife. According to the Code of Hammurabi, the child of the slave would become the child of the mistress of the house, and the slave would be elevated to the status of a lesser wife or concubine. And that would be how it would stay unless there was rebellion in the house, if this lesser wife tried to take over the role of the chief wife of the family, then she would be reduced to the status of a slave. And that is exactly the template that is being worked off of here in this triangulated relationship between Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. Now let's look at verse 3 of Genesis 16 together. So after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So she became wife number two. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. The terrible love triangle had formed in Abram's life. Thus becomes the controversy, thus becomes the conflict that we are really living with to this day. A conflict of nations based on a conflict in a family that was never properly resolved because it represents a step outside of the faith plan, of the divine plan God had for Abram. Sarai's response in verse 5 is extreme. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. Now she is operating legally and technically within the confines of the code of Hammurabi by saying, My slave girl who has become your second wife has turned on me now it is your responsibility as the husband of the house to administer the law in regards to her rebellion and bring her into line and so she says i gave my maid to your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived she looked on me with contempt may the lord judge between you and me the woman who wanted Abram to be blessed and have a son is now calling for the wrath of God upon her husband. And look at verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her as you please. 
Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Just as the code of Hammurabi had stipulated, she was now reduced to the role of a slave. Now, where does a stranger go in a house of a princess? Where does a slave go in the house of one who owns everything? She goes away. And in the story, she fled to the wilderness to hide from her mistress, Sarai. The silence of her flight was broken only by the divine will to find her. And dear heart, maybe in your walk with God, you've come to a place where some leader in the church, maybe some leader here in the church has hurt your feelings unintentionally. Or maybe intentionally. And what does the person do who feels like they're a stranger in the house of God? They often run away from God. And so here we have Hagar running away from the people who have a knowledge of God because of the ill treatment that occurred in the house of faith. It happens in our day as it did in her day. And so the silence of her pain, the silence of her flight is only broken by the divine will, the divine voice that speaks the heavenly intention to seek her out and find her when she cannot even find herself. The Bible says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Shur in Hebrew means rock. Now this angel of the Lord is not an ordinary angel. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fears him and delivers them. We know that in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord calls himself the Lord. We know that the angel of the Lord was worshipped legitimately in the Old Testament. There is no missing it if you are a clear student of the Bible that God himself at one point or another in the Old Testament chose to come as his own angel, chose to come as his own messenger because there are times in life when an ordinary angel won't do. There are times in life when a created being cannot connect with his people. There are times in life when God must take the wings of the cherubim and ride upon the winds of uncertainty and come to you in life and find you. And when God finds you at a time like that, dear heart, God is the angel of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord here is really Christ in the Old Testament. It is Christ as verily God coming as the messenger from God to reach the person who cannot find God. And maybe in the post-New Testament era, you are that person. He comes the same way. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to the rock, literally. The Hebrew word for spring or well in verse 7 is ayin. It has two meanings. It's a double meaning word. It means well of water. For instance, in the book of Genesis, when it says the fountains of the deep burst forth, it means the ayins, the wells of water, but it can also be translated the eyes of the great deep burst forth because it means well or eye. And so she comes to a place with a double entendre in the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew indicates a relationship between a human eye and a well of water in a conceptual kind of way. Just as wells well up with water, eyes well up with water too, don't they? Wells are the source of a water deep within. Eyes are the source of understanding deep within. I remember when I was in Galax, Virginia, and I was searching for God. I was 15 years of age. And I was walking out over the flats of the city there, and I came to a bridge, and I looked down, and I remember this clear stream of water that was just still. And as I looked down into that water, I mean, you've done this too when you've looked over a bridge into water, haven't you? You see your face? Now, how many of you have ever been tempted to keep on looking at the face you see in the water? 
Sure you have, right? Because it's a natural mirror. Before they made glass and the like with mirrors, this was nature's mirror. If you wanted to see yourself, you needed a well of water. You know, the Bible says in James 2, the law is a mirror which helps us see our disobedience. In the Old Testament, that would have been a well of water. And so it's no accident that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they refer to the law, they call it a well because it is nature's mirror. And so here she comes to a well where she can see. And I remember as I was standing over that bridge looking down, I could see my eyes looking back at me. My eyes met my eyes. And it was in that moment that I realized I needed God. It was something about looking down into the water. I saw myself for who I really was. And it was a turning point in my life. There are times we must come to the law of God, to the well of God, look within and let our eyes meet our eyes and see ourselves for who we really are and our need and our corruption and our utter dependence upon God. Tears are often the evidence of a profound insight in life. And tears flow from the well of your eye. When you look into a well, you can see your reflection well. When you look into someone's eyes, you can see your eyes meeting yours. It is a profound point of insight in her life, an opportunity for growth that she finds in the desert. In the Bible, God often reveals himself near a well of water. So Hagar came to a well to find herself. She came to a well because it was not well with her. She came to a well to get away from the one woman in the church, in the family of Abram, who drove her out of the church with a condescending eye. She came to the well. She ran to the wilderness to get away from Sarai and Sarai's God. And the God of Sarai pursued her into the desert and found her near a well of water. Verses 8 and 9. And he said, this is the Lord speaking as the angel of the Lord, Hagar, maid of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now what an answer. Imagine what's going through Hagar's mind here. Are you kidding me? God, of all the things to ask me to do, go back to her, submit to her. Submit to sorry Sarai, ugly Agatha. Now, I hope no one's named Agatha here, okay? Not trying to pick on you. Give in to her God. I mean, if he's anything like her. But wait a second. You're her God. Uh Uh-oh. Come on, you've got to be kidding. Not kidding, Hagar. Go back to her. See, Sarai represents the line of the promise. In the book of Genesis, there is no hope for the human race anywhere on earth unless they are aligned with the seed and the promise of Abram, which means ultimately Jesus Christ, who is the promised seed. And so her only right to life is through the line of Abraham. Whether she likes it or not, she must go back and submit to where God has placed her. The promise to Hagar in verse 11 sounds a little like the promise given to Mary in the Bible. Notice how it reads, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Now go to Matthew one twenty one and notice what was said to Mary. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It sounds a lot similar, doesn't it? We find that she becomes a prototype, a pattern of what will later follow. The name Ishmael literally means God hears. Hagar has a hard time accepting what God says. She's more enamored with what she can see. 
In fact, she is a visual person here. When she hears something, she thinks she sees it. There is no evidence whatsoever in the text that God appeared to her at this moment in her life. Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord found her. Verse 9 says, the angel of the Lord said to her. Verse 10 says, the angel of the Lord also said to her. Verse 11 says, the angel of the Lord said to her. You hear all that audible stuff going on there? Not one word about God in the text indicates that she saw him. And yet she claims to see him. Look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Thou art a God of seeing. For she said with a question in the Hebrew, and most translations bear this out, Have I really seen God remained alive after seeing him? Now the voice of God is so real to Hagar that she asks herself the question, Have I really seen God? Have you ever heard someone, their voice was so clear to you that you could just visualize who they were? That's what's happening here. The sound of God's voice does not qualify as a vision of God yet. The sound of God's voice is so real to Hagar, the promise is so great, that she almost feels like she can see God. I heard him. Could it be that I actually saw him? She calls the name of the well, Bir Lahai Roy, which means literally in Hebrew, the well of the life of my sight. She looked at the well, and could it be when she heard God, she saw God? Yet she does not see, she only hears. Hagar's experience in chapter 16 is not a description of a deep and mature relationship with God. She is not changed. She does not see God in chapter 16. She confuses sound with sight. True Hagar is enamored with God's presence, but she has not yet surrendered to his voice enough to see him. Is it possible in life to meet God, dear heart, to hear him, to sense his presence, yet fail to understand and see him for who he really is? Is it possible to come to church, hear a sermon, hear the words of a preacher on the radio, and fail to see God for who he really is in your life? Is it possible to hear the message of his voice and think you have seen him when you really haven't seen him at all? Hagar's journey to the well is not the journey of sight. It is the journey of fright, fear, and pride. The woman who hears must come again and later in life to the well to see God. But the good news is God doesn't leave her between these two journeys. He doesn't forsake her. He doesn't give up on Hagar. Though God, she heard, hangs around long enough for her to see him. The next four chapters of Genesis are dedicated to Sarah. Chapter 17, God promises Abram that Sarah will have a son and he will be called Isaac, which means laughter. At this point, she becomes part of the promise. God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. God changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which means the princess in a more direct and feminine form in Hebrew. For the first time in the story, God includes Sarah's name in the promise And when he does so, Hagar knows what that means. It means something is not right in her interpretation of it all. Somehow she is not part of that promise for the promised child. In chapter 18, God appears to Abraham and Sarah at the door of their tent. After a meal of calf and bread, he gives the promise that Sarah will have a son in the spring. And she laughs. It can't be. You know what happens. The Lord says, why are you laughing? He says, I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. The Lord says, you're laughing. Why did you lie? Isn't it neat that God takes people who tell a fib every now and then and forgives them and keeps them in the promise? I don't know about you. There's not an eye that's looking at me here today that hasn't been deceptive at one point in their life. Is that not true? Let's be frank with each other. 
this is kind of a neat element. He says, why did you laugh? And she said, no, I didn't laugh. He says, but you lied. Loves her anyway. Let's not lie to God or to each other. So God changes Sarah's name to Sarah. In chapter 18, God appears to them, as I've said, and he says in the spring, Sarah will have a child. Chapter 19 introduces the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to show that God keeps his promise to judge his enemies. In chapter 20, God protects Sarah from the hands of Abimelech so the promise can be filled. He says, get your hands off my princess. She's going to have a child, and that child is none of your business. And finally, in chapter 21, God fulfills his promise to Sarah, and she gives birth to a son at the age of 90. Look at verse 3 of Genesis 21. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would suckle children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Can you hear the sound of triumph in her voice? Can you hear how the scale has tipped in her favor and Hagar is now on the wrong side of the scale? Verse 7 is a loaded message meant for Hagar's heart like an arrow headed straight to where it hurts. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would suckle children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Who's the greater mother now, Hagar? Who's the mother who will divide my home now, stranger? Hagar was standing by hearing it all and she knew exactly what it meant. She had misunderstood God. She had acted unseemly. Something was wrong now in her strategy. Her days were numbered. She felt it. She knew it. When Isaac was born to Sarah, Ishmael was 16 years old. Sarah had borne the brunt of Hagar's sneers for 16 cruel years. The emotional boil had enlarged from spring to spring. The wound around it festered deep and tender, and finally the boil was waiting to be lanced. It was the perfect storm for Abram. Abraham was not expecting what happened. Suddenly it exploded in his face at Isaac's weaning party. Look at verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking the key word is mocking. You can just tell what's going to happen next. Sarah says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. Drive the stranger and her son out of my house. Now, notice what Sarah does not say. She does not say, cast out this woman with your son. She does not say, cast out this woman with my adopted son, which he was legally, according to the code of Hammurabi. Legally, Sarah was Ishmael's mother more than Hagar. In verse 11, the Bible says the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. What happens next is unbelievable. I mean, God spoke to Abraham and he commanded him to listen to the voice of Sarah and send the mother and the boy away. Now, two times in Abraham's life, he is faced with the terrible specter of losing a son. He arises early in each story. And the story of Ishmael is preparation for the story of Isaac. He must give up his son for another son, but the day will come when he must give up his only son that is left in his home. His first son was sent away at the command of God. His second son was nearly lost as a sacrificial lamb at the command of God. Ishmael 
was a test to prepare him for a greater test on the way to Mount Moriah, which will be the Temple Mount and ultimately the place of the cross. Verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Beersheba literally means well of the promise or well of the oath. Hagar returns to the desert to find a promise or an oath that can be given for her. Promise for the future from God. The woman who thought she saw God the first time didn't see him at all. She knew his voice was in the desert. If only she could find him and see him there. It is a spiritual principle that sometimes, dear heart, you have to wander around in the desert and go back a second time to really find God. Sometimes you have to feel a little lost before you can be found. Genesis 21, 15, when the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away. For she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. In her first flight to the desert, she didn't cry at all. She was angry. She was afraid. She was motivated by selfishness. She wanted to get even with Sarah. She had misinterpreted the promise of God given her at the desert, at the well, that somehow she thought God had promised her that she would be mightier than her mistress Sarai, that she would be the mother of a great nation through Abram, and Sarai was out. But no, she was now wrong. She realized that she did not understand God's word. What she heard was not sight. It was a misunderstanding. She thought that her son would uproot Abram's love for Sarai, but it did not happen. Thanks for listening today to Reaching Your Heart. You have been listening to part number 21 of the Genesis series entitled The Stranger. Now, due to our time constraints, we were not able to bring you the entire message. We will conclude this on Monday, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find this broadcast online at reachingyourheart.com underneath the broadcast schedule there on the main page. You can download copies of these messages in MP3 format or listen right there on the web. Our phone number here is 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. Feel free to call that telephone number at any time. Reaching Your Heart is a listener-funded program. The address here is Reaching Hearts International, 15300 Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. Thank you for helping if you can. For Pastor Mike and everyone here, we want you to know that we pray that God is reaching your three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.